This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. And I'm Wayne Chang. How's it going, guys? Wayne. <laughs> Wayne. Finally. Yes, and, yes. Uh, I have a yeah. two-year-old daughter. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Totally she runs around a lot. <laughs> yes, totally interesting. I've, I got two kids of my own, so I totally get it. And uh, and unfortunately, you're here, which means, obviously, of course, Scott can't be here. Of course. Because, you know, that's just how it works, I guess. Uh, so, Scott, we miss you. Yeah. If, if all all four of us were in the same place at the same time, I think that would release Rectal Cash. I was just going to say, I think that, yeah, that probably, would be, I, you know. Yeah. It's, we, it's written in the product. Just read it, you know. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. This, this is a product of the dragons and the Lord of Dust, you know, sort of trying to manipulate things to, to their own mm-hmm. ends. And I appreciate Scott trying to save the world. Indeed. By not being here today absolutely but we miss him. absolutely we miss him we do so if you haven't caught on by now uh in this episode we are going to discuss a sort of counterpart to the previous episode uh which we covered uh, dragons of Ebron. we're doing the lords of dust uh and the reason why this is a counterpart is because the lords of dust as we know are also a very cunning and prophecy manipulating uh group that that uh exists in Ebron. and we'll dive you know, deeply into, into all of that. Uh, to start with though, there are some three uh, key readings that, uh, we recommend, um, all of them written by Keith Baker, obviously, uh, that and, guy, uh, that he guy, just won't shut up. Oh my God. You can't get him to shut up about everyone ever. Uh, mm-hmm. ac- according to, uh, to Jen, apparently too. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Um, so, uh, in any case, uh, you did a Dragon Marks recently. You actually you reposted it with some additional content on the Lords of Dust. Um, you also covered one, the Age of Demons, and you, which and I think was a was an important one because we've talked a fair bit in that article and you know others about the Lords of Dust in the present day. But I think it does help to have this picture of, but what was the world like at their height? You know, what essentially right. are they trying to get back to? Right. Uh, and that's a useful uh, thing. So that's something that hadn't really been covered that much until this Age of Demons and You article. Yeah, I think I think that's a very fair point because it's, it was always ambiguous as to what did the world look like then and what would it look like if it came about again. Um, and then there was a, a fantastic article. I actually just brushed up on it myself uh, in Dragon Magazine 337, uh, Lords of Dust aptly mm-hmm. titled and and eternal in there, you, evil i think yeah. is the name yes oh is that what it was yeah yeah it's, it's and, eternal uh, evil the lords of dust so there you are okay well we'll make sure we have that accurately in the, <laughs> in the show notes and um and that was interesting because there's actually stat blocks for um i think for a cup one of the overlords there's one and, of the overlords soul katesh and then eldrin tolku i uh, not eldrin tolku uh it's her uh, wow, now see, now I'm just totally wrong. I'm getting this all wrong. It's Sol Katesh is the overlord. And then there is one of the Lords of Dust who is the uh, speaker of Eldrin Tolku. And I'm blanking on his name right now. He's like the voice of chaos or something right. like that. And then you have little profiles as well for some of the other Lords of Dust. Absolutely. And that was, uh, which, was which one. Is great. That was one of the things I, I wanted to do. There was both four overlords and lords of dust. That mm-hmm. was sort of the first place that we really spelled some of the mountain detail. Yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting to sort of see the scope of their power, uh, at least in, in the third third edition context. It's the um, the stuff that used to be up. I, I wrote a bunch of Ion Eberron articles that were up on the fourth edition uh, sort of dragon website. I don't know if that is accessible anywhere because I did have one of those that was specifically about Rock Tolkesh, uh, the Rage of War. But it like might- I said, I'm not sure that's a thing that is actually available to anyone these days. Yeah, I know they have some of those um, magazines issues in drive through RBG, so I don't know if that article is covered. It might be. Um, that's something we can take a look at and, and dig up if, if we need to. So uh, so I kind of want to I want to start off with, with a, a, a question from the <laughs> development side. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is something that always had me curious, and I, I don't think there's ever been a discussion about this. Um, Raksashas are very heavily prominent in the, among the Lords of Dust, as, and in fact, they're, they're sort of what lead it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we refer to the overlords as Rajas. So why those two things in particular for Eberron? Well, first of all, I will just say that, uh, well, 
We'll start with the Rukshasa. So part of the point of Eberron was trying to use things that exist in D&D that haven't always been incorporated into some of the main settings. So, for example, psionics, you know, that Eberron just said, let's actually make psionics a part of the world, but a part that you can uh, shift aside. If you don't want to, don't use Kalistar, don't use Sarlona, easy to avoid. Um, hey, dinosaurs haven't been used much. Let's have halflings ride dinosaurs. And Rakshasa are this uh, sort of interesting concept that have been around uh, since the original AD&D Monster Manual. Uh, famously, of course, with stats related to Kolchak the Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. Um, but haven't always been used in interesting ways. And so part of the idea was to distinguish by saying that for the most part, demons and devils are extra planar, while Rakshasa are the sort of evil spirits of Eberron itself. Uh, this also sort of ties to the fact that they are inherently shapeshifters. You know, they mm-hmm. are sort of well-suited to this idea that we are just deceptive, manipulative, and evil. Uh, as opposed to some of the more traditional devils and demons that are more sort of, if you will, aggressive in their styling. Uh, what we have specifically called out more recently, you know, is that you can still get those kind of devils and demons, you know, just coming out of Kyber if you want. It's just this idea that the Rakshasa are the sort of most common native outsider. And that in particular, I don't think we've ever said the Rakshasa are found on any of the other planes. You know, they're still sort of Eberron's own or at least Kyber Zone. Now, this flips to Rajas. Rajas actually is just a holdover from the fact that in the original descriptions of Rakshasa from previous editions, the most powerful Rakshasa are called Rajas, and we just kept that in there. I didn't like that idea, uh, in part because the whole idea is that the the, the bosses, the big spirits, the, you know, shaking the world spirits are not in any way Rakshasa. You know, Eldrin Tolku, Sol Katesh, they're not Rakshasa. Mm-hmm. And so to me, calling them Rakshasa Rajas implies that they are big Rakshasa, whereas really it's just that they are the rulers of the uh, Rakshasa. So that's why I personally refer to them as overlords or the overlords of the first age. Okay, That's something I'm pretty sure I pushed into. uh, I think it it actually started in that Dragon article, and then I pushed it into fourth edition. I'm pretty sure the fourth edition book calls them overlords. Uh, So basically... I never use the term Raja because it it is, to me, deceptive and makes them sound like they're highly advanced. You know, to me, that's what the Lords of Dust are, uh, the ones that are Rakshasa-based, whereas the Overlords are something bigger. And in part, that's where in that Dragon article, that's, you know, the first time 337 was the first time we had stats for an Overlord and showed that it was something much bigger. At the same time, looking to things from a mythological perspective, one of the things about, uh, you know, when you get back into Hindu mythology and such, is the idea that a lot of Rakshasa, demonic creatures in general, uh, are very much natural shape changers and that they are what they want to be at the moment. And so that's the point to me with the overlords is sort of saying they're not devils, they're not demons, they're not rakshasa. They are embodiments of evil that can basically be whatever they want to be at the moment. So when you look at that description in 337, they have, they can be basically anything between fine to colossal form. Okay. Uh, You know, if one wants to be a dragon, it's a dragon. If it changes its mind and wants to be a person, it's a person. And, you know, the idea is whatever form they take should in some way embody their concept. Uh, Drow Couture should always be somehow about ice and winter. Uh, Rectal Kesh will always be in a warlike form. Uh, but nonetheless, he can be a big armored warrior. He can be a giant demonic uh, warrior, you know, that they are not sort of a, a spirit in that way that a devil is a particular thing. It is that they are just these pure embodiments of uh, these concepts. Okay, so that that really closely aligns to my my personal impression too. Where I I also didn't 
jive well with the with the term Raja, and I defaulted to overlords and such. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing that you're talking about there at the end there was the idea that there are expressions of ideas mm-hmm. um, that that you know are on the material plane. Um, and like, you know, Tiamat, for example, is an mm-hmm. overlord, you know, associated with dragons. And, and, and Tiamat is an example where we, we did shoehorn her in. Sure. But it was that idea of saying everything has a place in Eberron. If I was going to put Tiamat in, what would I do with her? Right. And the answer to me was I'd make her an overlord and specifically I'd make her an overlord about essentially the darkness in dragons. Right. That she is their, uh, the evil that they can do. And that fits the general role she has. She leads evil dragons, even though we don't have that same dichotomy of dragons in Eberron as a baseline. Right. Metallic versus Um, chromatic, right? Exactly. And so instead, all dragons are vulnerable to Tiamat. Uh, But it's, it's still that idea. Part of the point, again, is she's not a, you know, a dragon. She's not, you know, a devil. She is the embodiment, again, of, uh, you know, all the negative aspects of dragons, pride, power, all of these things. And this is also part of the idea of why the dragons don't rule the entire world, is that essentially the wider they go and the more power they claim, the stronger she becomes. And so they have to sort of curtail themselves uh, because if they go too far, they'll they'll fall prey to her. Right. Um. Any other thoughts in general regarding Lords of Dust before we dive into for GMs and players? Uh, not for me. Okay. Um, so what, one of the things I kind of want to lead into, maybe maybe for GMs, before we dive into sort of the Age of Demons itself, um, you know, when, when we talked about in, in the Dragons episode, the sort of manipulation of the prophecy and how these things can take, you know, a century or more uh, or that we have these shapeshifters among either dragons and or the rakshasas mm-hmm. uh, interacting and meddling and manipulating. Um, I think that can be a challenge for it's, – it's easy for a GM to, to tr- sort of craft those kinds of things. Um, but how do you do that in a way or how have you do it, done it in a way uh, such that the players are still kind of getting something out of it? That there, there's a, some semblance of of recognition that this is what's happening without sort of spoiling it. Uh, well, speaking to me, you know, part of the question is when you are starting a campaign uh, to decide sort of what do you want to do with them? Uh, how are you going to use them? So I will say that uh, in my Kabara campaigns, uh, I decided right from the start that this will involve the uh, Overlord Miss Virick, the Cold Sun, uh, and that players are essentially stumbling into sort of they're figuring out this ancient story that there is a demon bound here. Uh, and that then as we go deeper, I'll start to get into, uh, you know, what is he looking for to be released and things like that. But right now they're literally just sort of stumbling, you know, desecrating ancient temples and things like that. And later they'll discover, oops, you know, we shouldn't have pulled all the Dawn Shards off of that protective ring. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far I've, I've been running this campaign with two groups and both groups have been great about being standard people on a frontier who immediately pry off valuable stuff from like tombs and things like that. Um, and, and I've been, you know, the, the divine characters have started having visions, uh, of, you know, the dark serpent encircling the sun and they're starting to find, uh, sort of someone showed up with an ancient relic, which then activated and created zombies. And, you know, they're like, I don't know, it was a sphere with a serpent wrapped around it. And so part of it is what they're doing is stumbling into things that clearly have a history that they don't know and that they're going to stumble into, you know, they're, they're now starting to dig and trying to find out what do these things mean? What is this, you know, serpent around the sun? And so part of that is that's less they are being manipulated and more they are stumbling across a thing they don't understand but can tell it's something much bigger 
and are now actively trying to find find out more about it. And then as they do, they'll then start getting into the poison dusk and, uh, you know, other forces that are out there. Um, in one of my, my Sharn campaign, uh, one of the players has actually basically said, well, I'm a diviner. Uh, I want to be having visions from Sol Katesh. And these really disturb me. And, you know, part of this is this is part of where, you know, my talent is a diviner. I'm seeing things I don't want to know. And so that was a completely opposite way of I don't have any big plans for Sol Katesh doing anything, but I'm going to feed this guy crazy visions you know, that are coming from her. So what I'm saying is, eh, if she's got a way to get out, it's still a century or two away. But she is having an impact on the game in a very immediate way. And so that's part of the question, again, of when you're using a Lord of Dust, what's the end game here? Is it the release of an overlord? Or is it that, again, the overlord's still, a, that's a long way off, but they're just trying to spread their influence or uh, pull off a particular piece of the prophecy. Right. Right. And so I'm saying, so I'm saying you can, you can sort of have them as when you look at some of my novel series, you can see, Oh, here's where there's an agent of the Lords of dust acting in an underhanded way that stretches out over the course of three books. Uh, and by the end of the novel, they're suddenly sort of figuring out, Oh, wait a second, this whole time that guy's been doing this thing. Um, and again, with the Thorn of Brayland novels, if I'd gone on to five books, which was the original plan, the, you know, fifth book would have involved a much more active, uh, plane in the, the war between the dragons and the demons. Um, but that's the point to me is when I do this sort of thing, I want a way that it will impact the players at low level. This artifact causes a disaster. You know, this person has a vision, uh, this thing happens, but I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I'm okay to say, but that's not going to be important or central till later in the campaign when the characters have enough power to actually start interacting with these sorts of things. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Wayne, how about, how about you? How have you, uh, if at all, uh, employed Lords of Dust and and uh, and the perception, I guess, of the you know that the players might have, or the player characters might have, I should say. Well, that's actually one th- one thing that you know I have in the show notes, and I just kind of added in uh, recently was that it's very daunting. I mean, <clears throat> the Lords of Dust, the Overlords, it, it's a very daunting task because mm-hmm. not only do you you know, everything in Eberron is, is connected, but they're separate. So let's just isolate the Lords of Dust for a sec. Um, as a dungeon master, you're looking at a, you know, age eon spanning organization um, that is enemies with the other eon spanning organization. Um, and itself. Which, yeah, and itself. And and the magical the magical prophecy that flows through everything in this world. Um, to me, I, I'll be honest, I never used it as a, d- a dungeon master or as a player character because it was just so much. And that's one of the worries that I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have. And I've, I've, I've definitely had that where, you know, we talked to the other dungeon masters who've said, oh, I've used this, I've used that. It was just too big. It was even like the Delkir were smaller than these. Oh, and they are smaller for sure. And uh, to me, two immediate things come to mind on that. You know, first off, uh, don't try to use the Lords of Dust because they are too big and too broad. You know, this is where pick one of the overlords. Say, we're going to involve Tiamat. We're going to involve Raktokesh. Uh, you know, looking again to my Sharn game, at the moment, I have no big plans for it to involve the Lords of Dust overall. But this one player has a connection to um, uh, the Solkatesh, and I'm going to play with that. And so that's what I'm saying is I've decided this is not a campaign in which the Lords of Dust are going to be the driving force. I'm just using them in this very specific, small way. And to me, uh, that's a way that I'm like, what are some concrete things you can do? Like three different examples that immediately come to mind. The one is that Lords of Dust are imprisoned by the Silver Flame but also in concrete, coherent vessels. And 
that a overlord has influence over sort of the area around its vessel. Uh, and that in some cases we've talked about vessels being broken up and, uh, people having pieces of them that, you know, then reduce the area of that influence, but still have influence in that, around that, uh, that piece. So first off, even if you're not using the Lords of Dust as a long-term plot, because again, since their plots go for centuries, you can just say, and it turns out none of those are happening this century. You know, they'll all be around in 20 years and something will happen then. But for right now, uh, you can still use like, uh, the, the tomb of Solkatesh as an area that is, is suffused with dark power that is causing problems. You know, people have just settled in this area, not realizing that it's cursed. And so that's a driving bit of a plot. You can have people finding a piece of a vessel or having to protect a piece of a vessel and that again, influencing events around them. So, I mean, that's a way to sort of concretely say, we're finding essentially it's, you know, the wand of Orcus or what have you, you know, we're introducing this powerful magical element that is a piece in a grander scheme, but we're not going to get to that grander scheme. We're just dealing right now with the fallout of having this small, you know, this piece in play. And so that's sort of a thing I'd say is if the big picture is too big, don't use the big picture. Say, what is a small, focused way I can deal with this just in this particular campaign? Another uh, example I like to, to think about is Lords of Dust can actually end up helping player characters if it's sort of helping them down the road. And so it could be that, again, uh, you could have a Lord of Dust who serves as a patron for a group and gives you the information you need to go find uh, the Blade of Sorrows in this particular dungeon. Uh, and this is because they want you, or perhaps they want your kid, you know, to use the Blade of Sorrows to do something that helps them in the prophecy. But it's still, they want you to get this artifact. And, you know, there's always that if a Lord of Dust helps you to do something, you want to kind of worry about it a little. But it is still a way to introduce a patron who helps you get powerful stuff. And, and then you can be like, uh, you know, to me, it's that sort of Stormbringer and Elric of, well, you know, now I have the scary demon sword. Is that a good thing? On the other hand, it's plus five and has all these cool powers. And uh, so to me, it's like I said, you can make it a big overarching plot, as in my Kabara campaign, where long term, it will end up involving the potential release of the Gold Sun. Uh, or you can just use them in these small, finite ways as whether it's the influence of the imprisoned overlord, whether it's a piece of their vessel, whether it's them trying to push a very specific piece of the prophecy that, again, in terms of releasing an overlord, oh, that's like six steps down the line. But there, it's, it's a reason that they're still manipulating this particular event uh, to, to pull out an outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things that I always found that, you know, We've got a 320-page book, <laughs> and in order for you – almost feels like in order for you to use this material, we did not provide enough information for you to use the minutia, what you've mentioned, mm -hmm. just the smaller pieces of it. But if you want to use the entire organization, here's the entire organization right. with enough information for you to get in trouble with. I always felt that about the Lords of Dust, and one of the things – one of the reasons why we didn't use it a lot. Obviously, dragons showed up. Mm -hmm. um, but the opponents to the dragons, I think, did never got its due um, right. until later articles. As she wrote later articles, um, just never got its due, and it was just one of those. And you've got the, you know, you threw in the, the we, we threw in the the Dalkir, so they get a lot, you know, they get a lot of play. Um, the, you know, they're the far realms. My, my personal favorite, like I, I like far realm right. stuff, right? So, and um, so that's that was always the thing, and so it was sort of like this is. And no offense to anybody writing, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Of course, I'm of not course. criticizing. I'm just saying. Oh, no. It was very much a. There was almost a. Hand, I felt like it was almost a hand wave on the right. Lords of Dust because it was this giant organization that had multiple structures and multiple little things. We just don't have enough space in this 300-page book to give you enough details, but you need to know about it. <laughs> no, and I, I think that's valid because part of the point is they are a part of the history of the world. You know, they are sort of. Uh, 
sort of from the start and they are the lurking evil that if they are unleashed, all heck will break loose. They are the reason that the silver flame is a thing. Uh, but to me, that doesn't mean, again, you have to use them. Uh, and because they're so complex, uh, it does require more space. And so I really do agree. I feel the three articles we've mentioned just as part of this all again, you know, like what I just talked about of, hey, use the vessel, use, uh, a, a, you know, an overlord, uh, not an overlord, uh, uh, one of the Lords of Dust just trying to spread their influence. All of these are things I write about in uh, the articles we've linked to uh, precisely because, as you said, it's this is a more coherent, more small scale way to use them. And they are hard to work with. Um, this is part of my point with any Eberron campaign is Eberron has multiple grand scale villains you have the dreaming dark you have the dalkir you have the lords of dust and within the lords of dust you have 30 different overlords who have their own smaller subgroups uh to me with any given campaign i suggest you definitely don't worry about more than two of those and maybe not even that if you do worry about more than two of them then one of them should be i'm a minor guy who just shows up to you know do a little thing i'm not doing my big plot you know all of with the overlords the dreaming dust the i mean the dreaming dark uh and the lords of dust they all have these grand big schemes and it's very easy to say like i said Turns out uh, the Lords of Dust, none of their schemes are going to come around for another uh, 50 years. You can just not worry about them right now. As I said, you can use them in those small ways. They're affecting things, but they don't have to be about to be released if you want your campaign to focus on the Dalkir. And if you do, focus on the Dalkir. You know, if you try and cram every single plot line, it's the kitchen sink thing. You know, these are all tools that you can use but definitely pick the one that is is sort of appealing to you and that focuses on things. And if you use the Lords of Dust, decide which one you're using. You know, I wouldn't try and use Tiamat, Eldrin Tolku, and Solkatesh all in the same campaign. It's just too much stuff going on. And so, like I said, I'm using the Cold Sun in Kabara, and in Sharn, I'm using the Lords of Dust essentially as a bit player. I'm giving a little a little role to uh, the Keeper of Secrets that sort of reminds you they're there, but it's not what the campaign is about. Yeah, um, I think uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a really solid point in that um, Eberron, with all the different organizations and all different threats, and even just the styles of play, lends itself to uh, for for GMs and, and players to. Um, to focus on the type of story that they want to play. If they want to do Lovecraftian horror, for example, there's there, there are threats specifically for that. If they want to do epic fight the big bad evil type of thing, there's stuff for that. If they want to do a noir and, intrigue, there's stuff for that. And um, that's exactly right. And and to me, that's the point. The Dalkir are much more of a blunt instrument mm-hmm. where they're mysterious, their motives can't be particularly long-term tracked and you can drop them in and they're doing a crazy thing and uh, you got to stop them. The Lords of Dust are more about, I want a deep layers of intrigue campaign, you know, or at least layers of figuring things out. Like going to the Kabara campaign, it's not about noir as such, but it is about, we are slowly uncovering an ancient story that we knew nothing about. Right. Um, and it's it's really the question is what is the sort of flavor of the game you're trying to capture and then pick the villain who's going to play best to that. And again, the Lords of Dust, the Dreaming Dark, uh, the Dalkir, they all tell very different kinds of stories. And you want to think about which one is right for what you were doing. Right. And that brings me to the other point about – you know, you can have that large scale, you know, century long plot mm-hmm. that, that, you know, Rakshasha might, might have. Um, but that's really just a high level concept just for the GM to keep in the back of their mind. It's not right. the focus of the adventure or anything to that effect. The focus of the adventure is that one little thing that, you know, that, you know, that, that agent of the Lord of the Dust wants to manipulate to just get one tiny step closer. 
And and that's the thing is uh, one of the things I talk about in the Age of Demons and you is is actually before I even get this, I just like to step back a little bit because we sort of dove right in and we didn't actually talk much about sort of what are the Lords of Dust? Fair you enough. Know, what is their yeah. structure? And so one of the things I'd like to say is so in the the sort of dawn of time, you know, the myth of the creation of the world is that you had the three progenitors, uh, Eberron, Sybaris, and Kyber, and they created the planes. They came together finally to, to create the material, and Kyber turns on Sybaris and kills him and tears him apart, scatters his, his body across the sky, and so the ring around the world is the broken pieces of Sybaris. Uh, Eberron tries to fight her, uh, Kyber, realizes she can't defeat her, but essentially becomes, you know, wraps around her and becomes a living prison that holds her bound. And so from the grand mythological perspective, this is Kyber is the underworld, uh, Eberron is the natural world, Sybaris is the ring around the world. Uh, this also ties to the broad concepts that the evil is sort of bound within, but can crawl back, crawl up out onto the world, uh, that life is what holds that evil at bay, that, that Sybaris has been broken, uh, there is no sort of divine force that is as powerful because of the treachery of Kyber, but that life has the power to, if not defeat that evil completely, to at least bind it. So mythologically, that's our grand scheme. This holds to the idea that at the dawn of time, you had the overlords, the children of Kyber, uh, and that they are beings with power godlike abilities specifically in 3.5 they had divine rank they are the only creatures we've said before you don't meet gods in eberron uh overlords are not gods but they have the mechanical powers that gods have in some other settings but the core there is the idea that those powers they are limited they have a very concrete sphere when we talk about the sovereigns the theory of the sovereigns is they're everywhere you know, whereas with an overlord, they have this immense practical hands-on power, but only within a range of about a country, if you will. If an overlord's released, he's going to dominate uh, Brayland, but he's not going to dominate the entire world. You know, they are not sort of that level of gods. And that's one of the levels uh, that, again, makes them clearly not gods, is their powers are finite. The idea of the Age of Demons is that you had 30 of these overlords released just sort of each ruling their own dominion, just basically completely defining reality within it. And that reality essentially was this sort of dreams of these mad, you know, or not mad, but very inhuman forces. Um, and this is this sort of point of why don't the rakshasa because they have the power to do so why don't they just rule the world and the point is they don't want to rule people you know sort of administering a kingdom isn't that interesting to them back in the age of demons it was a time of just absolute primal uh sort of magic if you will where the world just was what they wanted it to be and that's what they're trying to get back to not just let me be a farmer who runs, you know, an empire of cattle. Um, well, you know, I, I think it's interesting because mm -hmm. in the uh, in the Eternal Evil article in Dragon Magazine, mm -hmm. um, there was there was actually one line that that resonated with me, and it was looking at the power of the Council of Ashtakala. People mm -hmm. might wonder why the Lords of Dust have not conquered the world. Rakshasha's first answer to this would be, haven't we? Haven't we? Well, exactly. And this is my point, is that it's – they would argue things are going the way we want them to go. We have our agents wherever we want. We influence the world the way we do. Uh, the point is saying that they have no reason to be like, I need to be a demon overlord sitting on a throne. That – the world, they just want the world to do what it will do to get them where they want to go. And uh, so so that point of that, don't we rule the world, is 
if you're doing what we want you to do, that's all we need from you. Right. That actually, like I said, the day-to-day administration of actually governing a kingdom of, of pathetic mortals, uh, that's, that's work. You know, it's like me doing accounting. Uh, as long as you're doing what I want you to do and it's going to get me what I want, then again, it's the uh, the Rakshasa rule the world, you know, so to speak, sort of the way a farmer rules the farm. He's not necessarily standing around the cows all day because why, you know, what would he do? But they go where he wants them to go. Right. Or if you think of it like a leadership hierarchy in, in an organization, mm-hmm. You know, you might have a team leader or a team manager and you have members of that team that are doing all the work. Let's let's I'll use development like web development as an example. And, uh, you know, they're doing all the day to day work, all the coding and so on. Right. But the Riksasha, the Riksasha, uh, you know, member, uh, I guess leader, so to speak, is they're at the 5000 foot view. Right. They're they're looking at they're not in the trenches doing all the work. They're manipulating They're you know giving out orders there, um, you know, influencing decisions and things like that. And I guess that's sort of how I've always seen it. Like they're. No, that's exactly right. Is they're, they're big picture and Mm -hmm. they have their lesser agents who are manipulating things. So that's the point. They don't have to be king or queen because that doesn't get them what they want. As long as they have an agent in the court that is ensuring that things are going the way they want them to go. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's the, uh, you know, deep kingdom, if you will, uh, you know, it's the, the conspiracy they're manipulating and they don't have to be overtly in power. Um, but this comes back to the idea that how they were finally defeated is the Kuadal, uh, who were the, the same way that the Rakshasa are the native fiends, they were the native, uh, celestials. And all along they were weaker because this is the whole basic message of Eberron is, you know, Kyber treacherously, you know, defeated Sybaris through treachery, but that shook the balance of power, that evil has the advantage. Um, and this is why the world needs heroes. Uh, so the Kuadal were able to bind the overlords by sacrificing themselves and sort of creating the the silver flame as a sort of net that holds them at bay, even though they couldn't defeat them. Um, but uh, I was going somewhere with this, but how the overlords can be released is by manipulation of the prophecy that they need certain circumstances to come around. And one of the things I suggest in the age of demons and you is if you're starting a campaign in which the release of an overlord is part of the plot line, or even if it's not part of the plot line, but it's still about the Lords of Dust, figure out what it is they are trying to accomplish. You know, what are the steps in the prophecy? Because the prophecy isn't just a simple, uh, you know, kill Arala and uh, Raktokesh will be released. Because if it was that simple, they'd just have done it. So it has to be more complicated. It has to be a particular person kills her in a particular state of mind with a particular weapon. Uh, And so then looking at their agenda, it's make sure Arala is queen in the first place. Make sure that, you know, this particular person uh, is born for a start. Uh, Make sure they get this particular weapon. Make sure that they believe this particular thing about Arala and then make sure that they kill Arala. And that's where on the smaller scale, you have things like, get this sword. And so that's a more finite, that's what this stage is about, is just making sure that this guy gets this sword. And it could be that the killing Arala part, like I said, that isn't going to happen for 10 years. But, you know, this is why we get you this artifact. And like I said, for purposes of your campaign, you might not even get to the bad side of having the artifact, but they're helping you get an artifact for some mysterious reason. Right. And there's a, and that's just, mm-hmm. I would say there's a really good example of this in, and again, in the internal evil article. Um, and if mm-hmm. I may, I'd like to just read it real quickly. Um, sure. Cause uh, it's multiple parts. Just like you said, it's not, it's just, it's not just one simple thing. Um, five years past the fall of the human heart, three marked by dragons must slay the, three dragons. Uh, 
the bearer of the broken ring will rise to rule the black hill. When the realm of the dead touches the land of the living, the blood of the first child soaks the, soaks the soil of his father's grave, and the king of shadows will rise again. Like that is, there's so much to that in terms of so many pieces. The adventure might even just be like that first sentence. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's it. And not even touching and on that's the rest exactly, of it. And that's exactly the point is saying if that's the sentence, then which stage of that is your campaign going to cover? Um, whichever part of it, if it's the, the last part, then that means your campaign will deal with the release of an overlord and the players are going to have to defeat it and all of that. If it's the first part, then it may simply be Lords of Dust are going to try and bring you together as a group and, you know, they're going to try and sort of push you down this particular plot. Um, basically, coming back to Wayne's points, you know, it is that sort of they don't have to do that entire scheme in your campaign. You know, just pick a piece of it. Mm-hmm. And it is a way if you don't want them to be the focus. The way I'm dealing with uh, Sol Katesh, the Keeper of Secrets, in my Shrine campaign the point of Salkatesh is she is a source of arcane knowledge and that essentially as people discover things that does sort of strengthen her and help her a bit. And this is the, the sort of the secondary aspect of the Lords of Dust is the one thing they want to do is get out. But another thing is that it helps them to spread their influence by people doing certain things they want. When people fight wars, that helps Rakhtal Kesh. It just makes, you know, sort of feeds him. Right. Uh, with Sol Katesh, she likes people discovering uh, magical secrets. And so part of the idea of using her in this campaign is that because we've got this diviner with a connection to her, I'm just going to give him secret information from time to time and just say, again, he's a diviner. He just has this insight. But part of the idea of that is to say, but these are probably going to be things he doesn't want to know and that could shape what you know could basically give the party difficult decisions is we have now realized that uh the um Adal is plotting to kill Arala. He's just had this vision that that is going on. And so now the question is is he going to stop it? Should they just stay out of it? They don't actually know like does Solkatesh actually want an outcome here or is she just giving him information to you know essentially again uh, because of this connection with no actual agenda. And as I said, that's a very different way of using a Lord of Dust than the Kabara campaign, which is very much going to be there is an ancient evil about to be unleashed. We're at the end of the sentence. You know, we're actually quite close to the, the release and the players are stumbling into the beginning of it. Whereas with the Sharn campaign, it's not about her release. It's just oh, there is an ancient evil here and you're touched by it and that is going to have an effect on your character's story. I think one thing that, I think one thing, especially for, let's say, talk about D&D for a sec. Sure. We always deal with ancient evils and, and whatnot. One of the things I I've, I felt with this, one of the reasons why I felt it was very daunting was you gave us 30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are 30 mm-hmm. ancient evils to mm-hmm. to deal with. And even if not taken as a whole, that's like saying, here's all the, here's all the demon lords. Uh, what do you want to do with it? Um, so that was always one of those things that when I looked at it, went, oh, there's a lot of background and, and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Things that we don't know, things that have happened, things that have made up the structure of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. you may not deal with, you may not deal with the age of demons. You may not deal with those overlords, but the silver flame is still there. And part of that story is connected to them. So for for people who who didn't catch it earlier, obviously the silver flame has a lot to do with binding and uh you know, mm-hmm. holding back these demons. So even if you even if you only talk about it in in light sense of uh, of religion, that's still there in the background. Um when you talk about the prophecy, I mean, prophecy deals with everything obviously and you talk about dragons, but here's the second group of people who are opposed to the overlords, the dragons, because they're right. both trying to manipulate the prophecy. Now, individual dragons may have different ideas. You guys talked about that last time, but there's a there's a lot going on here and and that's why even though we're giving giving uh, our listeners a broad broad brush of what's going on, I mean, 
I, I, if I remember correctly, there's only like half of the actual overlords are listed. <laughs> that Well, less than that. So this is a point, is this is the critical thing, is there are around 30 overlords. Uh, at the moment, I think 17 have been mentioned by name, but they're very scattered. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because unlike archdevils and archdemons, we aren't concerned about we don't we never want to produce a list of all 30 uh we want to leave enough room there that you can just decide i'm going to have my story be about the overlord of greed and just introduce that character uh and make the story about that uh you know a lot of people have said why don't we have a full list of 30 and and it's like we haven't even said there's exactly 30 we said there's approximately 30 because we always want to leave that room for you to introduce the one that fits your story. The critical point to me is that the overlords are not allies. Uh, that even from the beginning, uh, they, and I have a cat walking past me right now, even from the beginning, they just sort overlord. of were elemental. Uh, well, I'll come back to that. Uh, even at the beginning, they just basically stumbled into each other. And, you know, one of the reasons they were able to be defeated is because they never stood together as an allied force. They just were these primal forces. Uh, and the, the Quaddle eventually just figured out this is how we harness them. Um, so that's the point to me is if I'm using the Lords of Dust, uh, in the Kabara game, I'm using Mesviric. In the Sharn game, I'm using uh, Sol Katesh. I'm not even worrying about the rest. I'm just saying I'm picking one. And this is also because within the Lords of Dust, each one has their own sort of set of followers. Um, so to me, it really is you don't need to try and figure out the big picture. Just pick a sliver of it. And say, I'm dealing with the shadow and the flame, or I'm dealing with the cold sun. And you don't have to worry. You know, as I say, the other guys, eh, their plans aren't going to happen for another couple centuries. Um, so part of it is to try and drill down and just pick the piece that is relevant to what you're doing. The other thing is the idea that the world at large knows very little about these because they're so old. Um so that's exactly the plot of the Kabara campaign I'm running, where the players, uh, basically the characters and the players, are both sort of uncovering. You know, part of the idea is that Miss Virick is an overlord specifically tied to Kabara and the history of Kabara, and that humans basically have never heard of him. Um, that, you know, the only way you are finding out about him is essentially by digging into the legends of the lizard folk. Um, and so that's part of the point is that rather than trying to squeeze all of this into the world as a thing, oh, well, everyone should know all of these people, uh, the discovery of it and the unfolding of things uh, can be a part of the story. Um, and also, of course, it is an easy way, like with Tiamat, uh, to work stories from other settings into the setting. Right. You know, if you want to do the Age of Worms, you can say that Kius is uh, the Prakutu of uh, um, Katashka, the gatekeeper, you know, and that that's just sort of a way to segment. I just want a crazy evil priest of an evil force. Great. He's tied to the overlord of death. Um, and yeah. and so actually, it is uh, back to that. Mm -hmm. No, you actually mentioned uh, Kius in the article as well. Uh, specifically with with that association, and, I, I uh, think that when they did the Age of Worms, Age of Worms. I think that was what I suggest. Yeah. I, I did some conversions uh, early on, uh, but I do have to to flip around. Uh, you know, the overlords we generally use because you know names, you know Sol Katesh, You know, they're uh, names. They're often it's easier to refer to them just by a title: the Rage of War, the right. um, uh, the Keeper of Secrets, just because that's easier. You know, to say I get what they're about. Uh, I do have to say that someone had asked before, essentially, if there's overlords as these embodiments of great evil, why aren't there embodiments of great good? Um, uh, one of the ideas, you know, one of the things I threw out then so was saying, oh, so you're looking for an overlord who's the cuteness of kittens. And so with my cat coming by, if she was an overlord, she would be the cuteness of kittens. <laughs> um, fantastic. And of course, my argument, my argument there was, uh, that it is back to that point of 
even from the mythological perspective, there is that absence. Uh, evil, you know, is stronger, but part of that is because instead of creating an overlord called the cuteness of kittens, Eberron created kittens. And that again, life is sort of the the force right. that stands against that. Right. And I was going to draw a correlation earlier where when we when we talk about the progenitors and we talk about the creation of all the planes and how they each contributed to the influence of these these planes and then using that that energy to also form a material plane um, or influence it. And that Kyber bound and you know sort of birthing you know these overlords and these demons and such um, that the demons themselves are still, or not the demons, the overlords themselves are still yet again expressions of certain things, right. and, and that's that's the influence that Kyber is having on Eberron as as a, as a right. material plane. Mm-hmm. No, I that's think exactly just right. forgetting that um, the rage of the rage of war is actually vulnerable to kittens. Um, Absolutely, it's written in a stat block somewhere there. So just, yes. just everybody remember that for next time. It's you gotta have. It a is. It is absolutely true, and and that is what the gift that Eberron has given us. You know, Sybaris gave us uh, the silver flame um, to to battle these things, but Eberron gave us kittens, and right. uh, no overlord can stand against That's them. That's all we need. That's all we need. So, it's, uh, yeah, but I'm sorry. <laughs> this this does come back though to a point that Wayne was saying that I mean is a good thing of saying. This is the idea of the silver flame, and but it is still part of the silver flame that, to me, it is a pretty concrete, uh, you know, there's a lot of things about religion in Eberron that are not absolute. To me, it is a fact that with the silver flame, it was originally created by the sacrifice of the Coatl to bind demons. Right. But the point is, the modern church doesn't necessarily know or completely agree on that. You know, that... Uh, the the story of Tira Marone does have a Coatl helping her fight Belshalor, but that doesn't mean that the standard doctrine of the church is 100,000 years ago, Coatl joined together. You know, they just have the concept that the Silver Flame is a union of noble souls and it holds evil at bay. And we know it holds great demons at bay because one of them got out before and, and Tira had to put it back. But that it is basically just that point of we know there is this force of good and we know that it holds evil things at bay. But all the specifics are the sort of obscure lore that, again, players may discover as they or unlock as they go. Right. right. So I think we uh, we covered the GM perspective well enough, unless anybody disagrees. Um, I know I'm good with that. All right. And so let's go ahead and dive into, uh, you know, kind of quickly here, cause we're kind of coming to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's dive into how players can sort of wrap their heads around Lord of Dust and how they can either, uh, influence the way they design their characters and their character stories or how they should perceive it in play. Well, I think what? one of the things, go on. um, I just think one of the things that, um, from a player perspective, um, let's say the DM, the, the DM is given just given some hints. There, there's an overlord here. They're they're talking. You're you're going to be dealing with this. And let's say that the end goal is near. This overlord is going to be released. Um, there is a stage of um, there's a stage of combat. I guess if you're talking about D and D, there's a stage of leveling up your progression of enemies from the you know the mooks or I'm not too sure what's going on to the 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 rank and file to the lieutenants and captains, and then uh, Overlord gets released. You got to put him back in the bottle, sort of thing, or her back in the right. bottle, right? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things uh, for me personally was uh, was that you know you have the Rakshasas, you know you have the Overlords, and you know there's agents somewhere around there, but I, I never found, I never understood, or maybe not not understood, but I never figured, I never kind of grasped what's in between the we're just getting into the story, finding out this is what we're doing, and we're hitting the Rakshasa uh, lords right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, there's a couple different stages. And so first off, early, early on, you know, one of these questions is, should the players worry about the Lords of Dust? You know, should they be afraid uh, or characters even? And uh, to me, early on, I'm just like, that's way above your pay grade. 
you know, you probably don't even know what these things are or uh, unless you're a scholar. Um, and as I said, that's when things are going on where, as you said, you might be clashing with agents. You might have a little, you know, discover a conspiracy or a cult. You might, uh, you know, one of the big things to me is, as I talked about, was the vessels. I might find a sword that has a shard of Rack Tolkesh's vessel in its pommel. And wherever this sword is, it's a very powerful sword. It's a big magic item. But wherever it goes, conflict is going to happen. And do we keep it? Do we try and find a way? You know, we can't destroy the shard. We could potentially destroy the sword, but do we try and find a way to destroy it or bury it or things like that? Or do we just ride with that and say, well, at least we'll have a magic, you know, a powerful sword to fight that conflict. Um, and that's sort of this example of I'm not actually directly fighting anybody, uh, but the Lords of Dust are having an impact you know, that flavor is having an impact on the story. While meanwhile, I'm fighting the Lord of Blades or, and this is sort of part of the thing to me is what I like to do when I'm planning a campaign is say, the Overlord may be the big bad. At the end, we're going to be dealing with the release of the Overlord and getting that. But in between, we're going to be focusing on the Emerald Claw or the Aurum or the Lord of Blades. That, you know, sort of Eberron has these tiers of here's the epic world-shaking threats, and here's the smaller, finite, these are things I can wrap my brain around threats. You know, uh, Cults of the Dragon Below, even if you're not dealing with the Dalkir, Cult of the Dragon Below is a great, this is our problem from level 7 to level 9 villain. And then we get back to that Lords of Dust thing. So part of it is I don't feel that I wouldn't want an entire campaign to be nonstop every adventure where we're back on that trail. Um, but if you did, one of the things is Rakshasa themselves come in many shapes and sizes. You know, the base Rakshasa is uh, like CR7 or something like that, uh, whereas then you can get up to an epic level um, speaker. Uh, so, you know, you can tag around with that. You can use other sorts of demons for them. Um, but also in the middle, you can have things where uh, if an overlord has been released or is partially released or is about to be released, part of it is quest to figure out how to deal with these things. We have this sword with the, the shard of Rectal Kesh's uh, vessel. What can we do with it? Is there a way to destroy it? Is there a way to just at least isolate it? And so pursuing that can be an adventure. Uh, likewise, the way I always like to say is that when Tira Marone defeated Belshalor, to me, it's not just he popped out. She just one day rode up and, and fought him. To me, she had to gather allies. She had to probably travel through the plains like talking to angels in Serenia. Uh, she had to find Cloynier, which is the, the only weapon that could, uh, could bind him. That to me, in fighting the Lords of Dust, you can have adventures that aren't tied to them, but that are about finding, you know, the things you need to actually face them. This ties, last thing I'll say on, on this, to the fact that the whole idea of the most powerful Lords of Dust, and especially the Overlords, is that they are immortal, that you can't just beat them uh, in battle because they'll come back. But one of the things that the Eternal Evil article calls out is that if you beat them in the right way, it sticks longer. You know, that I can say that I might never be able to fully get rid of uh, the Wormbreaker, but if I kill him with this particular sword uh, that's been blessed by this guy, he'll be gone for 100 years, which is good enough for me. And, you know, but that means I've got to find this sword. I've got to uh, get it blessed by this particular person and there's adventures. Um, so even though I'm not fighting him in those adventures, the adventure is being driven by trying to acquire the thing I do need to fight him. Well, and I think... There's also something to be said of, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about the, the layers of intrigue, right? And so you don't have to go from the first adventure revealing, oh, this is a Lords of Dust thing. And now we have this Rakshasha out there. It can be a, a series of like, you know, okay, yeah, you beat that bad guy. Who's his boss? Who's his boss? Who's manipulating that guy? And so on. And going up sort of a ladder to where when you are, an, you know, of an appropriate challenge, 
you know, you, you can, or uh, sorry, challenge, like you, like right, challenge, right, right, right. Um, then you're starting to face, you know, some of those threats a little, maybe not even directly, but at least you're, you're peripherally aware that there's something, you know, bigger going on. Um, no, and that's, and that's exactly like where I'm planning with the Kabara campaign. I haven't nailed it all out, but you know, the point is they've started by literally just stumbling on little fragments you know, hey, we found a couple tainted dragon shards. You know, we found an old temple with a quadal spirit that appeared and said something we didn't understand. Now they're dealing with the poison dusk, who are sort of touched by darkness. Um, eventually, like a mid-level thing, will be actually going and having to deal with uh, Rashak. Um, and that's like the mid-villain, you know, and we think, oh, maybe he's our, our big bad guy. But then we discover, again, he's just tied to an even greater force. So, you know, it's sort of, I can say, here are tears. You know, Poison Dusk is going to be early. Tainted Dragonborn is going to be, you know, next up. Rashok is going to be next up. Uh, Mesviric will be above that. But along the way, we're also going to be dealing with bandits. And we're also going to be dealing with House Therashk. And, you know, it's not, again, going to be 20 episodes of... Uh, of nonstop slamming our heads against the Lords of Death. Sure, yeah. And, and, you know, you might even start brushing up against the chamber or agents of the chamber. Sure. Because they're Absolutely. like, hey, you did this thing and this messed this up. And, you know, uh, or maybe not even directly saying that and just trying to no, do something. No, absolutely. And, and that's exactly the point is it's up to you to decide how do you want the chamber to be in on this. Is this something that slipped by their notice and you leave them out? Or do you want them to be closely involved and they start helping you or, you know, things like that? Um, this comes back to the whole point of the prophecy is to say that usually the prophecy has to be pushed in a way by specific individuals, which is why you'd get the dragon may want to help you, but it can't solve the problem for you. Right. Because, again, the dragons and the overlords, you know, they are so powerful that if the problem could be solved just by them, then why do we need players? And so the trick to using the prophecy is to tie in that sort of idea that they may, in fact, be frustrated. You know, I've got a herd. I'm herding these damn player characters. Uh, But they can't solve the problem on their own. Right. So all that to say that player characters, um, you know, they might... (sighs) You, you you know as a player you might be in, in an in an adventure where you 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 might not be aware that this is what's going on or this is something you're dealing with um, but you know maybe you have a DM that kind of reveals that to you just from the perspective of you know hey this is this is going to be the sort of general plot line and then you know borrow from some of these ideas that we've talked about to incorporate it into how your character develops you know over the the adventure arc itself uh, and how how they see things and 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 maybe even instill a sense of paranoia in your character mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know like not knowing oh who's who's an agent who's not you know um, well and and you know another thing i've suggested which is a bit of a wacky idea but it's perfectly valid is whether you're a warlock uh who could have an overlord as your patron mm-hmm. uh or just any character who just decides oh i want to you know the the soul katesh thing i was talking about you know the guy specifically sort of likes the idea that he's sort of haunted by these visions that this isn't like a concrete easy she's telling me what to do or anything like that it's he has these terrible visions but Especially taking the warlock example, you could actually say, I am tied to Sol Katesh, we'll just say, but she's having me fight other agents, you know, the agents of other overlords. You know, I know I'm working for a kind of bad person, but I'm using that power to fight even worse people. Um... Or other characters, I've, I've had warlocks where it's like, oh, actually what I'm doing is I'm drawing my power from this overlord, but I'm literally drawing my power from them. I'm like sapping off their energy to do my thing. Uh, so that's a way of sort of saying this person is technically my patron, but it's not a voluntary relationship. I'm stealing power from them. And that's just another sort of twist on the warlock dynamic. Right. We I think we talked about that once in a previous episode about... The idea of um, being a warlock. No, no, no. It was, um, no, maybe we did talk about it. But I think Mike Merles talked about this with regards to warlocks, where unlike a divine character, 
let's say in the traditional D and D sense where they're beholden to a deity and they have to, you know, follow certain rules and so on in order to get their powers, a warlock could make that pact or make that agreement, whatever it might be. And then suddenly turn around and go, thanks, no thanks. (laughs) And just completely ignore, you know, and sever ties while still keeping that power. Right. And so again, you know, and my point is that could be that's that's obvious with a warlock because that's sort of the basic character concept of a warlock. But you could just as easily make that the premise of a barbarian and say, my barbarian draws his rage from the rage of war. Mm-hmm. And again, that could be something that was a gift. It could be something that's a curse and you hate, you know, every time I use my rage, I know I'm strengthening a little bit, but someday I will break this curse. Um, or, uh, again, it could be that, oh, he empowers me and I'm using that power to fight other demons, you know, any number of things like that. But it's, it's back to that point of, you know, don't always be limited by the concrete definition, you know, the usual definition of a character. A barbarian could be a savage warrior or they could be, uh, drawing their rage from Zoriat and it's, it's sort of madness, you know, combat madness, or they could be drawing it from the rage of war or they could be, you know, uh, what have you. And that idea of a character who's using a force stolen from evil for good, uh, is an easy one, as is the character who's got access to evil power and who should they be using it or shouldn't they? You know, so there's a lot of sort of different little ideas you can play with there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm even thinking of other character classes. You know, it's, it's really about sort of trapping those abilities, right? And, and, uh, like you said, looking past that concrete definition that you see in the player's handbook and really looking at how else can you express that idea of that mechanic or that feature for your class, um, or even for your race in some contexts. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very good food for thought. I like that. Yeah. Cool. Anyhow. So um, I think that pretty much covers everything. Uh, I don't know if we have any other last-minute thoughts. Um, Keith, you got anything? Wayne, anything to add? Uh, I think we actually lost Wayne, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened. You got... uh, um, uh, Sucked away by the Lords of Dust. Indeed. But we should have known. Now we're all going to go. That's it, yeah. Um, all right. No, I think that's good for me. Uh, I hope I hope people can make sense of all this. Yeah, me too. Otherwise, we're not doing our job well, and uh, that's not good. <laughs> so uh, thank you all for listening, and be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone, where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, find links to our Google+, Twitter, and Facebook pages. Whatever option you prefer, just let us know what you think of the show. Uh, even if it's an iTunes review, that we love those because other people get to see those. And um, yeah, and uh, join us next time when we sort of get back into talking about races. And uh, Keith, we're gonna kind of dovetail off an article you recently wrote on halflings. So uh, all right, yeah, uh, we'll be talking about halflings, halflings of Eberron, indeed, Di- halflings riding dinosaurs, as Wayne would say. So. Um, All right. Well, uh, until next time, keep exploring.